0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, DJs and DJs of the future. This episode of the podcast is supported by Bitwax, the online vinyl store that accepts cryptocurrencies as well as payments from normal cards. I used to own a record shop for many years and still have a solid vinyl collection in my studio today. There's nothing better than receiving your favourite new track through the post, peeling off the plastic and actually touching the music. Go to www.bitwax.co.uk and treat yourself today. You can find more episodes of this podcast, including chats with James Hype, Ben Hemsley, Lefty, Vanilla Ace, Tim from the Utah Saints, and many, so many more. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, and on Mixcloud. Simply search Felix Leiter in the house. In this episode, I talk to David Dunn, and it is one hell of a story. We could have talked for hours, but if you want to hear about the early days of the Hacienda, Traveling the world, DJing, working for MTV, KISS, Ministry of Sound, and get a behind the scenes look at Head Candy at the peak of its powers. Stay tuned. David is a legend and a gentleman. So let's get into it.
1: Felix Leiter's in the house. The podcast about DJs, what they do, and who they are.
0: Welcome to the show, David Dunn. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, keeping? I'm excellent. I've really been um, looking forward to this one. I think I meant to ask you to do this a very long time ago, and I just haven't for some reason. But this podcast has had a variety of people, um, you know, from James Hype to Ben Hemsey and all kinds of people. But there's something about... um, Asking people with a level of experience that often I think brings an awful lot more to the conversation, and that's obviously I'm 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 no spring chicken myself, but there's I think I've, I have looked forward to, you know, for me you are very much a legend of not only kind of Manchester and the North, but the whole the whole scene in general, um, and I'm looking forward to finding out so much more about you. Um, I'm gonna just ask you to start with before we get into the kind of um, the regular questions of the podcast because it would be remiss of me to not ask you, we are now in late September, nearly October, 2020. Um, How have you found the last six months? And this is a music thing, obviously you can bring in personal stuff as well, but I mean, DJ wise, I mean, radio show wise, I mean, you know, record wise, industry wise, how have you found the last six months? And what are your sort of thoughts looking into the, the near and medium future?
1: Well, I think I'm very lucky in as much as I have a day job, uh, which is nothing to do with music either. So I've had something there which has given me structure to my days and my weeks. You know, there's been a difference between my work day and my night time, and there's been a difference between my weekdays and my weekends. So, So that's probably helped me cope better than some people have uh you know i live with my wife and i see my kids so i've not been isolated so that's not been an issue on the dj and the music side i still have the radio show so i get to do that but obviously i think i've played one gig since the start of february my last gig was mid-february and then my next one was due to be the 21st of march by which time we've gone into lockdown um So with the exception of a couple of live streams, I I did a gig about two weeks ago, an outdoor gig, and that was the first in six months. And that's the longest layoff I've had since 1992, I would say. From 92, I was DJing every week uh, somewhere. Um, And prior to that, on and off for uh, God knows how long. So the first four weeks I found really easy. It was actually nice to have saturdays again because any dj will tell you you know fridays and saturdays even though you might not work until 10 o'clock all day it's on your mind and you might have prep to do and you're thinking you always know at the end of the day is this gig which you hopefully are looking forward to but it does restrict you if you've got a family because there's only so far you can go or how long you can stay out for before you've got to get back (laughs) so the first four or five weeks it was like wow this is like this is what normal life's like i don't remember this um, and I kind of settled into it and had a couple of live stream things as well early on um, and it was going well until I would say, I would say about six weeks ago I really, really missed playing music for people Yeah. Um, and I was having this conversation last night with the, the promoter of a night that I've been resonating at for ten years in Manchester called Funkademia and uh, Dave always does the warm up when he's on as well and he really loves doing it um, and we said it isn't even that we miss playing music for people. And it's certainly not the adoration, the hands in the air. It's the communal experience of being in a room with people, listening to music really loud with an atmosphere and a vibe. And that's that's what I really, really miss. I miss that uh, instant communication and being part of a group of people, because the DJ is just as much a part of it as the people on the floor and vice versa. And, And that's what I've really missed. Yeah, um, I think
0: you've I think you've summed up there really how I felt as well. I think at first it was relatively easy, although my sleep pattern was really odd. It was also quite easy because no one else was doing gigs, so I didn't have like gig envy or I was seeing someone there or here. And then, yeah, then I just started to realise, I started to realise how little I listened to music, because I was DJing three nights a week sort of, you know, for 15 years or so. I started to realise how little music... I listened to in a social setting because I was so used to playing music for four, five, six hours, three nights a week, and I would use that as a, like a music listening experience, whether I was going through promos, obviously I would do prep for gigs, but it would be like like you said you were hearing it loud in a club, you were judging reactions yeah i really I really found that really tough and i, and I still I still am to be honest um, to touch on the live streams how how did you find those? I, 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 how did you find them? Did you, have you done them prior to, to, this, to this COVID experience? How did you find it DJing without a crowd in front of you? Did you find that you got the same satisfaction? Did it fill that void?
1: Well, I had two. I've only done two, and I had okay. two really, really different experiences. So the first one was part of a project called United We Stream Greater Manchester, which had been put together by uh, Sasha Lord, who, you know, is part of the Warehouse Project, but he's also kind of the nightlife representative for Manchester to the City Council and beyond. And he and some other people put together this series of streams every week, uh, raising money for the nightlife industries. So you know, and and these were. Uh, high production things, you know. So we went off to a venue called Berry Met, which is about, it's about 40 minutes drive from me. Berry's a big town outside Manchester. Yeah. It's a 700 capacity venue. So we got there. There were five people there. Um, so were, uh, there was like a guy who was doing sta- a bit of stage management and he was also running the event. There was a couple of vision and sound mixers. Uh, then there were two camera people. And we were doing it as part of Funkademia the night I mentioned before. So there was, four, I think, four of us all doing about an hour and a half each or an hour each. And I was first on as well. And it's a very strange experience to be... Sterile. A, yeah. And we're on a full stage set-up. Full stage, riser, massive LED screen behind us, full lights, full sound, full rig, everything. Put this, like four or five people there. And it was really odd plus i was the first on and i was aware by this point that it'd been going a few weeks and it, it was a very popular live stream certainly in in, in greater manchester and beyond and funk has been going for like 20 odd years so a lot of people know it uh so we knew there was gonna be a lot of people watching so that put a bit of pressure on and also to the, <laughs> to the right of my vision was the vision mixing setup, which is like six or seven big you know 55 inch screens showing what the cameras are doing and there's a fixed camera as well so out the corner of my <laughs> eye all I could see was my big fat face and I'm thinking well, normally at a gig I'm, I'm you know as you touched I'm, I'm, I'm I've advanced years now I don't jump up and down as much as I used to simply because it would look like me dad doing it you know a bit daft a man of my age jumping up and down but i do get into it but I, and, and so i'm then thinking oh do a dance do a twitch what do i do I, I felt really self-conscious and i was very nervous of making a mistake it was it was a really interesting experience something i'd never done before so i'm really grateful we did it and it went down the night went down very well so everybody was happy uh, but it was very odd the next one was a hacienda thing with a, with a group uh, a private group on on facebook which was in my conservatory so it was a bunch of djs all tuning in themselves so you know i've kind of got my 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 rig on me, me table in my back room um and i've got uh, an ipad filming me on a step ladder all jerry rigged up you know wires everywhere to, just to try and get this picture um, but I decided then because of the self-conscious bit that I'd felt I was going to do something while, while the music was going. So I, I roped in my son and he came and joined me. And in between the songs, I wrote down on a big pen and pad, the name of the tune and the title and would hand them to him. And he would up to the camera and hold them and we bring them back. And I was also able to be on responding to people on Facebook so and then my wife came in and the dogs came in and by the end of it, you know, we're all in this room dancing away and it was a very, you know, very very different. The two were really different and I enjoyed them both equally and found them both equally terrifying. But I'd I, never done them before.
0: I think what I found, I've done a couple, and what I discovered was that from years of of, of DJing, I I almost find it difficult without a crowd because I left to my own devices, I'm sort of like, well, what do I play next? Like, am I, am I playing something next that is in key? Am I playing something next which is is rhythmically and, and emotionally similar to the previous one? Am I, because I'm so used to just, you know, that looking up, you know, looking for a reaction or knowing that I'm trying to get somewhere. So I'm, you know, working, that like you said, a warm-up. I'm working to a time or knowing that the, the club 's going to finish so I'm working to this peak. Or So the idea of just standing for an hour on my own but not on my own but like over the camera i kind of i'm not i've really found it strange to think or know what record to play next and why i was playing it um without there being a dance floor to warm up or to really entertain or to bring down or yeah i found that i found that really odd
1: it's, it's because no connection with people that was and, and the the one thing that i found uh, I enjoyed in the second one, the smaller scale one, was that I could reply to people were messaging and I could send messages and do things. You know, they were asking me to uh, like do things. I'd also, for the first, the Funkademia one, I knew what I wanted to start with and I knew what I wanted to end with and I'd made something for the start um, and then had some bits in between that I really wanted to play, but I kind of left it because I wanted to sort of just try and get some kind of feel. The second one, because, I knew, you know, it was an hour and it was a Hacienda thing, I'd prepared a set so I wasn't thinking in that bit then that much about what was going to come next. I did actually go off piece a couple of times and change it but that one was a, um, a bit easier to manage then because it was like right I know what I've got to do here and it's not you know it's about showcasing these I chose the 90s here and nobody wanted to do the 90s so I did 90s the stuff, and so it was like right that's what I'm doing. Uh, the interaction was great on that so I think that That, in in a way, although smaller scale, and because my family were involved, I wasn't on my own. You know, my son was there, my wife was there, the dogs were there, we were holding signs up, we had wigs. You know, it was was less nerve-wracking than the other one. That's cool. Well, I
0: think I think that because that was a really positive way to start the um, podcast. I'm not going to take us down a negative route. So we're going to go, going to start off with the sort of the structure that we always have. So I want to take you right the way back before you were a DJ, before you were buying music, before you know. Just I want to take you all the way back to being really, really young and ask you what your first memories of hearing music are, who was playing it, what kind of genres were it, what kind of records were they, if you can remember, but we're going right back to being a really small, you know, toddler or a, a young child. Who was playing the music, and what was it?
1: So I was born in 1962, so I was a 60s kid. Uh, and my dad is Irish, Irish immigrant to, to England, um, and my dad had a ritual which we did almost every weeknight without fail, uh, which is we'd have tea, Uh, and then what had happened, and it was tea not dinner, uh, we'd have tea and then we'd watch the news and we'd watch the programme after the news till half six or whatever it was. And then the TV would go off and my dad had cobbled together, my dad was a gardener for the council, didn't earn a lot of money, but he cobbled together through bits and bobs, uh, an old amp and an old turntable and a couple of speakers which he kept in a cupboard. So The cupboard would come open and he'd start playing music and my dad played Irish music with a bit of country. So my, you know, from being very small, my memory of every evening was my dad would put Irish music on and we might have a bit of Elvis, but you know, that was it. I also have an older sister who's 10 years older than me. So when I get to about, say, six, 1968, 1967, my sister is 16, 17, buying records, and my sister loved The Beatles, The Stones, Stacks and Motown that was it so on the other side of it because when my dad finished playing records my sister could play records so I'd have Irish music for an hour but then my sister
0: would put her records on so I
1: grew up with that
0: And do you know what? Like, straight away, and I mean, I was going to make the point because all the siblings always play a big role in this podcast where people's musical influences come. But straight away, you've again just picked on something that we talked about before, which is that communal sense of listening to music together. Do you know what I mean? Which. I don't think probably happens as much now as it should do because of the likes of Spotify, YouTube, you know, earphones. Like, you know, I mean, you can tell me about your family, but and I, you know, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I know that I listen to music personally. I know that, you know, other people that I know listen to music personally. There's not as much of that. Or the whole family comes together, put a record on, and we all listen to it together.
1: Yeah, and it was a bit, that was, it was just what happened in our house. So I never questioned that because it's like, you know, that's what, that's what I thought. Everybody did that. I thought everybody put on records. Uh, and also, I grew up growing up as a teenager in the 70s, we had a thing whereby one of us, so there was a group of us, one of us would buy an album. We'd all go round to that bloke's house, that lad's house that night, and we'd all listen to it. And we'd listen to it, it you know, because you like the same things mostly. You'd listen to it again and again, and you'd be looking at the sleeve and trying to see what the sleeve notes were, and it, maybe it was a gatefold So, So there was that continued into my teens whereby you got to go with your mates and listen to records together you know and every so often someone would bring one around you go oh that's awful get off it'd be like two tracks and they'd go into a corner disgrace (laughs) but you know usually there was like one a new album would come out that we all wanted to get but couldn't afford at that point so one of us would buy it and then we'd all go and listen to it and then you know eventually we'd tape it if when, when we when one of us got a tape deck, we'd then tape it for everybody that night. But there was that communal thing was really common. I think back then. R- now I would say I listen to music at home with my wife. It's never or rarely new dance music. She still loves the head candy stuff, so that goes on sometimes. But as a family with my son, we do it in the car. Yeah. So because the one was the Bluetooth. So what we do if it's a long journey is we have one song each. So one of us will get our phone onto the Bluetooth and we each choose a song off YouTube. Nice. Uh, and it's as random as it can be. I mean, re- you know, all over the place. All over the place. And, and especially, you know, I get quite competitive then. So I start thinking, <laughs> right, I'm going to freak him out. What can I play? Let's have the Ramones. Let's have Blitzkrieg Bot by the Ramones just to see what my 30-year-old son makes the Ramones. But we do that. So there is a bit of that. and, and um, But it's not the same as you know, getting round in your kitchen in, in our little house and all four of us would be listening, you know, to this, this whatever it was, you know, The Beatles. When my sister, got, I loved it when my sister got hold of the record player, because then it was like, that's great, you know, I, I could hear even then, the Motown stuff in particular really got me when I was a kid. It just sounded so joyous and happy, and you still know, does. <laughs> Ocean, Yeah, and I still, I really do love Motown now, Bec- not just because it's a childhood thing, but because of the quality of the music. But even as a little kid, I, you know, there was something about that music that really, really got me. The Beatles, I did the opposite; with I went right away from them, disliked them intensely in my teens, until I came back to them in my thirties, and and listened to Revolver and thought, "What idiot." You've not been listening to this for 20 years. What are you, what are you doing? And um, so, you know, things change. But yeah, that's it. music's always been there
0: since I was... And that is literally when I was like three, three or four. So can you remember the first piece of music or bit of music that you really felt like was yours? And obviously, I'm going to guess it was a piece of vinyl. So it was either something that you saved up for or were given the money to buy or something that was given to you or, or you took. But can you remember the first bit that you really felt like you owned and it stayed in your room and it was your record or your piece of music
1: first album i bought was a compilation and it was i think it was eight or nine i'd saved up my pocket money and uh, there used to be in the 70s there was this really uh, cheesy compilation label called k and they used to do like they used to put like 20 tunes on an album so 10 on each side so you know they were that close together and the pressings were awful to sound quality it was terrible and they'd have all these kind of different, you know, sort of genres. And they used to advertise them on TV. And the, the first one I bought was k Greatest Hits of the 60s. Um, because, you know, I was like, like you know, it was 1970 this was. So they, they didn't waste any time. Right, we're in the 70s now. <laughs> let's, let's put a compilation of that decade that's literally just finished. Um, and it had, you know, it just had things like um, The Birds on. You know, um, and are you going to San Francisco? And it was really bubblegum pop. And that was the first album I ever bought, and I battered it. I mean, it sounded bad anyway, but, you know, by the time I'd finished with it after about two months, it was practically unlistenable. But that was, like, my album. I had an album. Yeah. And then I started buying singles from Woolworths uh, around the same time. Um, and use again, this is, you know, younger people will be thinking, what is this old man talking about? But they used to do ex-jukebox singles in Woolworths when I was a kid. So it was singles that had been in a jukebox in a pub somewhere like that. And then when they get changed because they're out of date, they give them to Woolies and Woolies would sell them for 10p. Amazing. So you could pick up sort of hits from a few months ago um, for like 10p. So, that you know, my pocket money went a long way. So I, start, I started buying records fairly young, really. But that that tel one, uh, I remember that I went and bought it again on eBay a couple of years ago. Nice Just one. to own it because it, somewhere along the way it's got lost. Yeah, and I bought it and gave it to me dad. Oh, that's nice. Said, "Dad, you'll remember this." He was like, "God, you used to bloody play that every night. You put that album on every night. Bloody Mr. Tambourine
0: Man." So. <laughs> I think you made a really good point, which which I've never really heard or thought of before. <clears throat> but but it's true, and I can I can um sort of agree with it. Which is, you made that point, which. You couldn't afford the music, like so. So now that's just completely alien. So if you hear a song that you like, or you discover a new song that you like, you can listen to it technically for free as many times as you want, whether it be on a, a non-membership Spotify, whether it be on um, YouTube, or you know whatever. So the you know, the access to music now doesn't have that whereas I mean I remember I remember again hearing something and then you would you would go I need to save up the money to buy that because I can't afford to listen to it again until I own it which I just thought was an amazing point to make because it's that's such an alien perspective to people now um who can listen to anything they want as many times as they want
1: there was the, when I, I mean so and this goes really this goes right up until you know pre-streaming there were three ways that you got music you either you heard it on the radio, uh, and everybody listened to the radio then. So you'd hear records on the radio. You might hear them maybe on a music TV program, or you went and bought them. You know, you went into a record shop and listened to it, you know, because in those days, record shops would like you to listen is, to it, so you listen to another it. another amazing it.
0: point. It's another amazing point. And I remember doing this, buying music before you'd heard it. Do you know what I mean? So something would come out, whether it be an album, maybe more an album than a single, but you would see that a new album was out by whoever it was, and you would just buy it. You would just part with your £10, £15 to buy it. I don't... I don't know if I would do that now. I think I would be like, oh, let me just have a little flick through on iTunes or let me have a little flick through yeah. on Beatport. But yeah, another great point, which was that you would buy music without even <laughs> having
1: heard it. If, yeah, if you really like those three or four songs on that album, you couldn't buy them separately yeah. unless they came out as singles. you had to buy the album. So it was kind of like, no, you know, there's there's a huge chunk of your, your change gone, maybe just to get, an, get a, you know, Five or six songs that you really like there'd always be some filler apart from those rare classic albums yeah which you'd skip over but that was it and we, you know the only other way we found out about it was music papers and music magazines which were really big when i was a teenager yeah. and really pushed music forward i was 15 16 when punk came out and the music papers were a massive part of build of pushing that scene and breaking that music more than radio Radio, with the the exception of John Peel and a couple of other notable exceptions, didn't want to go near it at first. So you would, you know, you buy the enemy or whatever it was, and you read about these bands and these records. So you wouldn't heard them, like you say, you go to the shop and go, "Have you got this thing by Slaughter and the Dogs?" or you know, it's it's, you'd it's have this you'd just read ju- about John... it to go yeah. and buy it, and you'd be like, yeah. "I want to get that." Um, so you, you had a different way of coming at it as well. You were you were you were more. I think we were more open. It did mean. That every, as we would find out on our boys' listening nights, every so often this big new album would come out, your mate had gone and spent his money on it, and he'd bring it round, and you'd be like, "What a dog? <laughs> so <laughs> you, need to take, you need to take that back. But you could take it back. You could just go to WH Smith and say, I bought this album, and it, it was a, oh, I've got oh, two God, of it yeah. for my birthday. Imagine, and they'd give you
0: your back. That's amazing. Imagine even had an iTunes going, I don't want this new Cardi B record <laughs> It'll be 79p back. So, so the next question which which again it sounds a bit odd in in the world that we live in now because everyone's so aware of of DJs but can you remember the first time that you were really aware of a DJ or it was or the fact that it was somebody's job to mix records together you know to entertain people whether it be on a dance floor or a or a radio station can you remember the first time that you just were aware that that person was being a DJ was it was it someone on the radio was it a gig was it a friend that had some decks or what was that first memory of just the existence of a DJ I think
1: the idea well the thing is I had no idea what a DJ was when I was a kid from a DJ was somebody who was on the radio that's because that's what DJ to me that's what as a child you're not going to clubs um so back then the idea of a DJ was somebody on the radio so it was and when I was a kid it was radio one was the only thing to listen to. So it'd be people like Tony Blackburn, you know, and, and I assumed they chose all their music and played it themselves. That was their thing. They must choose everything that they play. Not true, obviously, but, you know, you thought that's what it was. Um, and then, um, you know, you started hearing about these things called discos, you know, because my sister would be talking about going into Manchester and going to the Twisted Wheel you know, classic Northern Soul Club and places like that. And i go, well, you know, what happens? It's like, well, the DJ plays plays music and you dance. So I'm going, well, what do you mean? Well, he's got, like, record players and he plays the music. It's dead lap. Like. So somebody talk us do that again. What did he do? <laughs> so I couldn't get me. I can remember vividly getting, thinking, well, I thought a DJ was Tony Blackburn, that you, you talked in between, between the record and that's what you do. And so my sister explained it to me. But I didn't see one until I was 14, and they started doing under-18s discos at my local nightclub. And this is going, so we're talking 76, probably. Uh, Back then, most towns outside of the cities had a nightclub, a disco, as they called it. Even little towns would have one. Uh, And I come from a town called Swinton, which is on the edge of Salford. It's not a big town at all. We had one called the Wishing Well. Uh, up near our shopping precincts, and it had been a before it was a disco it had been a dance palais it had been there for years and we heard they were doing these under 18s discos because by now we knew about clubs but you couldn't get into them so we're like we've got to go to this so off we to this club and we me and my three mates and we get in it's an under 18s disco but it's open to everybody so you know this is kind of a strange thing now with licensing things so you could go in if you were under 18 but it was also open to 18 plus as well so the bar was open (laughs) they had a fully alcoholic bar serving but obviously if you were under 16 you weren't going to get served was the theory and they had a DJ box and there was a guy there called Mike Prince and he had you know he had two decks uh, not very speed at this point just two uh, two decks and he had a He didn't have a headphone, he had a telephone receiver to listen to as his monitor thing, like the old big plastic telephone thing plugged in, and he was on the mic in between. And he'd play, he'd just play the music, and he'd do a bit of chat, and he'd take the mickey out of someone. And I I remember seeing this and thinking, that's brilliant, that is absolutely brilliant. He gets to play all these records he loves, and people dance. And they listened to it. it. Just seemed like the most amazing thing that you could do this. And and I was quite shy back then, so it took me about four weeks of going before I could actually speak to him. Um, and I went up and I remember saying, "Excuse me, is it all right if I can I just stand and watch you?" Is it "All right, if I watch what you do." And he's going, "Yeah, yeah, kid, yeah." So then, I, and I would be the kid, stood next to the DJ box, watching everything that he did, trying to figure out, "Oh right, he's." What's that? So he's queuing, it he's, he looks like he's listening to that next record on the telephone. And, and then it, and I'd watch his hands pulling the, the record back so that when he clicked the deck, it wouldn't go, there'd be a bit. And so I just watched him and then, you know, gradually sort of would talk to him a bit more as I, as I went, really. And he was the first person that ever made me think, I'd really love to do that. That looks really great fun. I didn't think it was his job. And he was, in fact, a record buyer for a record shop in Manchester, and he brought in loads of imports. So every so often, in between playing Wings' Silly Love Songs and Kung Fu Fighting or whatever else was on, he'd put on these really obscure records that he'd got in to see if they worked. So I heard things there that I never heard anywhere else, quite rare records that he'd put in between the pop. Um, And many years later, I used to tell people about this club. It closed in the the 80s. and I managed to track him down in, when I was on Kiss in the 90s. And there was a, a, a fantastic Manchester DJ called Dave Booth who passed away not so long ago early this year. He was a friend of mine. And Dave used to come on my daytime show as a guest once a week to play Northern Soul. At one o'clock in the afternoon, Northern Soul, who knew? And, he, um, and he used, him and his brother used to go to the Wishing Well. So I'd got hold of Mike and I'd managed to arrange for him to come in as a surprise to surprise Dave, uh, which he did live on air. We didn't tell Dave, and that was the first. But well, that was the first time I'd been in his company for twenty years as well. And I've 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 stayed in touch with him, and I've had him on other radio shows because it's kind of you know, for me, he was doing a job that not many of us club DJs could do now, you know, playing part, playing all kinds of different music and talking and entertaining a crowd and doing games, and you know, creating the vibe of the night. He wasn't just, you know, he wasn't beat mixing because there were no pitch decks. So, uh, yeah, he's, and I'm still in touch with him. So that's a very long answer to your question. No, but... no,
0: it's a, it's a great answer, and I'm I'm, I'm also aware, David, like, we're not literally going to be able to cover everything that you've yeah. ever done. Otherwise, it'll you know gone for hours. So, excuse me if I do kind of skip various things, or yeah. but you know, please talk yeah. about what you want to talk about. But I guess then the next sort of segue question is. And you mentioned it there you know this is brilliant and I'd love to do it what what was because I don't think it was as easy then as it is now to decide one wants to become a DJ and one gets a controller and you know so what were the sort of steps and how long did it sort of take for the this to solidify in your mind that it was something that you wanted to do and then what were the sort of the steps on that journey to to get there
1: oh it's all completely accidental right so so I you know I I used to watch Mike every week and I went to that thing for like three years every Wednesday. I was there every week. Um, but I never thought I'd get a chance to do it because I thought, well, how am I going to get to DJ in a club? And then at sixth form, uh, they decided they were going to let us have sixth form discos. So the school bought a disco kit and gave it to the student council and said, right here, you can do some sixth form discos. So and I was on the student council and they're kind of thinking, great, we'll do some discos who's who's going to play the records and everybody's going oh i don't know, i can't do that you know who wants to do that Who wants to you know because they're thinking i've got to stand behind the decks all night i can't pull you know i want to be out there um and it, so i sort of said I've, I've got quite a lot of records so I, I wouldn't mind doing it And they're like right all right dunny can do it so that was it so that's how i started doing it so it was a six form disco i got paid 53 50p and free pop um, and uh, the first record, I, the first record I ever played, still own it on seven inch, was "Since You've Been Gone" by Rainbow. Wow, a classic. Yeah. Um, and so I started doing school discos, and I went to uni, and um, didn't really think about it much. I, I also I used to play drums in bands, so okay. in my in my mind, I was going to be. A drummer in the world's most successful rock band yeah and you know i love DJing, love records loved music but that was kind of secondary and when i got to uni I, f- I found out that you could earn money in the the college social club by DJing, and you get 30 quid a gig i was on a 60 pound a week grant so that was like that's brilliant and they bought the records you, so i started doing that then which was obviously quite different to to six form discos because it was quite you know it was it was uh, pissed up university students.
0: Where were you at university, David?
1: Liverpool. I was in Liverpool. Okay. So this is. So we're talking 81, 81 to eighty six. I was there. So I, I used to do that. I used to DJ then, and that that's probably when I learned about watching crowds because that was like those those university crowds then w- were brutal. You know, they would they'd throw pints at you if you didn't like the record. There was no airs of grace. It was like,
0: rah, rah,
1: and you get a pint thrown at you so that 's when that I always say that 's when I learned to try and read crowds then, and you 'd have certain records and you knew always worked so that that was kind of regular and then I came home to Manchester in eighty six and didn 't really do anything like that I, it, for about a couple of years. Um, I was working in radio by then and I'd, i was i'd been going to the hacienda as a punter since I got back uh, and went to things like the hot night in eighty seven when an acid House kicked in. And I, I I just loved being a raver on the dance floor. I never thought that I just I never thought I would DJ in a club. It just didn't occur to me it was possible. You know I'd done that at uni, but you know I was working in radio. I was still drumming in bands, and then you know I managed to persuade him to give me a show playing the music I was listening to um, in the hacienda and other clubs because it, it, there wasn't much of it on on air. So, so what um, were
0: you doing in what were you doing in radio? Prior to this that you're talking about now, prior to asking and getting a show, what were you? Were you a researcher? Were you doing advertising? Were you a oh, producer?
1: You know, I started. You know, I, I, I tried to get into radio in Liverpool and couldn't get in because I'd always, I'd always loved radio. Yeah, that i you know, and I'd been a fanatical radio listener. You know, um, I just loved it. So I, I tried to work in it in Liverpool, couldn't get in. Came home to Manchester. It took me about a year to get a foot in the door, um, and I went to work on a charity appeal because they knew that they saw the students' union thing, so I can organise things. And then at the end of that, managed to sort of, I'd got to know everybody. I basically worked there night at five doing that job, then was in there every night making tea for people, answering phones, going in at the weekend, just absorbing it all. And they sort of said, look, we'll have some programming jobs in about a year because we've got some things coming. Get another job here doing something else. We can teach you how to be a producer. So um, I got a job in clubs and concerts sort of, you know, doing co-promotions and going to nightclubs, sticking up Piccadilly radio banners and doing all that stuff. But I all the time was learning how to edit tape, how to do interviews, how to run a desk. And then a job came up and they gave me a job as a producer and they wanted specialist music programs. So I started doing a jazz one um, because acid jazz had come through and was really big. And again, you didn't hear that on radio. You just heard Duke Ellington. So they cut me teeth doing that and then then the the you know the the hacienda had exploded stew allen who's you know n- never gets the credit he should have been playing house in his show on Piccadilly on a sunday but didn't yeah. want to do a full house show he was playing hip-hop soul and house and he very kindly put me forward to do um a show called the Isometric dance class on a wednesday eight o'clock literally playing the stuff that was in the hacienda that i heard there um and I used to go to Eastern Block Records to get the records. They were the people who were selling the records to the DJs. Yeah. So sometimes, on a, my show was a Wednesday, I'd go Wednesday afternoon. That record might not have got to Graham Parker, Mike Pickering and John DeSilva yet. So sometimes I could get them just before they did and get them on air that night. And that's that's kind of when, it, you know, after about a year of that, and people are saying, why aren't you DJing in clubs? You've got this, like, this radio show with all these listeners on a Wednesday night. And that's when I kind of... I thought I should do that, but I don't know how to beat mix. I'd never learned to beat mix because I'd never had decks.
0: That's interesting. Can I ask you? Because I've been listening to, I gave it a shout out on that previous episode. Actually, I've been listening to that new BBC podcast. I think it's called Ecstasy or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wanted to ask you about—is it called Stuffed Olives? Like, I wanted to ask you about that venue, like what your memories of it are, and.
1: I never went to Stuffed Olives in the Acid House days. It, it, it was a very small gay venue, which then eventually became renamed several things. And all the nights went there afterwards, such as Homer Electric, I think, did that venue under a different name. But uh, I had friends who were gay and he took me to the village in Manchester before it was the village, this big sort of playground in the very early 80s. Uh, so I knew some of those venues then when they were kind of, you know, quite, sort of just odd place odd the music they played was odd it was all kinds of things like show tunes and you name it like italo disco you name it so i never got to go to stuffed olives i had heard of it though and i was aware that that was kind of where ecstasy first made its appearance oh i mean i think that podcast is terrific because um it tells i haven't finished it
0: so don't don't
1: spoil it but it tells stories that you never normally hear in connection to Acid House, you know, so the things you always hear about Acid House are Danny Rampling, Nicky Holloway, all those people bringing it back from Ibiza, and, you know, the only, it's the Hacienda is is Graham Park and maybe sometimes Mike Pickering, and nothing else, it seems to me. That's all you ever hear. So to hear those other stories, which were real and true and important, is fantastic. Uh And I hope they do another one about... Sheffield, for instance, because it was going on in Sheffield in 86, 87 uh, with Parrot, you know, who's now Crooked Man who produces Rasheen Murphy stuff. And there's other cities they could do it on. It wasn't, you know, much though I would like to take the credit for my city, it wasn't just Manchester or, and London. There were other cities where there might be this one person. Or even Stoke, Birmingham, yeah. you know, Glasgow, Sheffield. And you I, know, want other, I want to
0: I do want to keep this podcast about about you, but I'd be remiss of me to ask at this point, what were your memories of the Hacienda? Do you remember the first night you went? Do you remember, you know, just, I don't want to put words in your mouth. And So what was your memories of that time and that club?
1: Um, My memory started about six weeks after it opened. So I was in Liverpool when it opened and couldn't get back. You know, I was aware this thing was coming. I was a massive fan of Factory Records you know and the bands on it, huge Joy Division fan, then New Order fan. Everybody knew Tony Wilson, we knew this place was opening, but I couldn't get back. So I went into it on a Tuesday night, uh, and there were, I counted them, 34 people in that club, including the bar staff. The first record playing as I went through was Bella Lugos is Dead by Bauhaus, an old goth record. And the next record was "Sweet Dreams" by Eurythmics. There was nobody in it. It was cold. It was Tuesday. There was nobody there apart from me, and I just—I spent the night round wandering it because I had never seen a club like this. This was like, what is this place? It's incredible. Um, and then, I, but most of my early eighties was Liverpool. So we'd come across, we'd hitch to go to gigs. Because it was for us, the Hacienda was primarily then a gig place. So there'd be a gig on and we'd hitch, hitch on the M62 to a gig. And then in vacation, as they call it now, um, I'd go to, say, New Year's Eve, all the Christmas parties that they do. Um, and then when I came back to Manchester in 86, that's when I started going to things like the Thursday nights and the Friday nights. Still not all house, though. It was in there. People like Dave Haslam and Dean Johnson and those, Little Martin, were playing it in between. Hugh and Clark was playing it. But the the primary thing for me was hot in 1987, a Wednesday night, because that's when they let them do all night, all house music. Um, and it was the one that had the swimming pool in. And again, it started off fairly quiet, but by the end of that summer that place was full on a Wednesday night. And um, it was extraordinary. In as much as Maybe a teenager today who's been at the Warehouse Project or one of the big super clubs or a festival wouldn't find it extraordinary. But when your, your knowledge of nightclubs at that point are really small places, um, generally speaking, sometimes quite tatty, and you go into this place that's got people... everywhere every corner everywhere you can see and the music's loud and the lights are going and it's acid house and people have got their shirts off and these whistles it was just incredible but you could see it over the summer every time you went back it was a bit busier and it was a bit crazier so by the time you got to sort of like september october 87 it was off it was on in manchester that was it um, and, uh, you know, it was it was a fundamental thing for me. It changed my life because up until that point, certainly 88, I wanted, my thing was, I want to one day run a radio station. I'm working in radio, I want to be a program controller. And, and I was there one night and they played um, French Kiss by Little Louie, which is still my all-time favorite house tune. And, th- and in the middle of that record, i was like i've got to be part of this i've got to do something connected to this music well that's not a lie it, it literally it, i i can remember it and that was then like right i've got to do something about this
0: that was it so that was an amazing answer but um so you're now we'll move around the time wise a, a little bit so you're now doing this this show on a wednesday yeah. And I'm going to take you back to your previous comment, which was, sort of realised people were asking, why aren't we DJing? And you sort of made the comment that at this point, you really weren't technically ready to to DJ no. in a club. So what are the next sort of stages? What are the next things that happened?
1: Are you, well, I used to have a DJ called Nipper, he used to be a guest. I, I'd try and have guest DJs on the Wednesday night show and come and do a live mix. So like Nipper used to come in, we had sort of Justin Robinson came in, a guy called Steve Williams, he was huge there at the time. Um, and they'd come in and do guest, live guest mixes. And um, Nipper and I had mutual friends as well, and he's a lovely man. And he he taught me to beat mix, he showed me how to do it. And he would even bring his decks in because there were no very speed decks in the radio station, no techniques. He'd bring them in and leave them for me to practice on at night. So after everybody had gone home, I'd go into Studio C or whatever and set them up and practice so that I just started practicing. Um, and we did, uh, we did a night in, I have to think of the time, it's probably the summer of 1990. We did a a Thursday night somewhere, me and him uh, in this little club in Manchester that was the first time I ever DJed out, DJed out trying to mix. Um, but I then moved to London, uh, for a different job um and uh, I, the, so the DJing kind of got put on aside for a bit okay uh, and i ended up working for a record company at one point and, and a mate a, a, fr- a person who worked there who became a friend of mine um was doing little house parties in his house in brixton and he had decks so i became a bedroom dj at that point with him and i'd go out of bruno's house in the week and we'd practice and practice and record them and listen back to it uh so we did that and we'd do these little house parties uh, for a couple of years and then I, I came back to Manchester in 92 and by that point I'd learned to I was all right on beat me I could get through it and I built up the record collection um, and I, I just started asking around and asked um, went into a place called Dry Bar which was the bar a separate bar owned by the Hacienda at the top end of Manchester it was kind of the first cool bar in Manchester they had DJs on and I just said have you got a night when I could play maybe you know this is this is what I, where I've come from. This is what I do, and they, they remembered the radio show, and so they sort of said, "Well, we've got nothing on Thursday night at the moment. If you fancy Thursday night," so I'm like, "Brilliant!" And they went, "We don't pay you though." I'm going, "Brilliant! Great, not a problem." And so that was that was my first residency really. There, dry bar on a Thursday. And after a year, they went, "We should probably pay you now," um, and I stayed there for five years. Um, I did every Thursday for five years apart from I think one week when I went on holiday because I just didn't want to miss it and that kind of got me introduced me to part of being the, the Hacienda family then as well
0: yeah I think so, that's an amazing answer because the amount of times that people not so much now in a global pandemic but pre a global pandemic people would always say like how do you know how do, how do you get a gig how do you get started and I would always just say wander around town and just go and find somewhere or like you know go out every night go go on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and go and find someone that's got a DJ booth with no one stood in it and then go up to the you know go and find the guys and go can I come and play for nothing just let me come and play for nothing do a great job be there every single week and I'll tell you what the first time the guy that's does a Friday or a Saturday isn't there they'll ask you cuz everyone's lazy and you've already proved yourself you've already proved that you you know you come on time you come every week you're not even getting paid and you're there and you're on time and you're turning up I was like that's how I did it like that's the way you know go and find somewhere and and get yourself into like you just said the family, you know, you become yeah. part of the furniture, you become the face, you become, oh, Dunny's back in, it's Thursday night, oh, he's done a great yeah. job again. Like, that's that's how you get gigs.
1: That's yeah, I played at the Hacienda because I worked at Dry, you know, because they had a spare gig going. Uh, I think the first one I did was the Christmas staff party for both Dry and the Hass, and they went, "Dunny, you come and do it, go on. You know, so Graham was doing it, all these other people, and I was doing them all, but I didn't care. I was playing in the Hacienda for the first time. I'd stood there four or five years before thinking i i've got to be part of this it was a dream but that was it yeah you you just go go and ask i i don't i've always found asking for gigs intensely uncomfortable uh because i guess i fear rejection like like most people but at some point if you're going to be a dj you you have to push through that point of 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 the fear of rejection everybody gets rejected along the way Everybody happens to everybody, and it can happen to you at any point of your career, even when things are great. Somebody might turn the back on you, so it's part of the field. And, like you sort of say, you know, people ask you your advice. You know, whenever people have sort of said to me, What advice would you give me when I go into DJing? And and my fundamental thing is, um, you need to really do it because you love it, not for the money, not for any other reason, because you really love it, and you've got to be prepared, uh, for people who are less talented than you doing far better than you and you getting told no a lot because there is no justice in it but you have to push and you have to keep pushing and keep pushing and if you're not up to that it will weed you out and I, I, you know, it's not the happiest of messages but I believe it's, it's true, you get, if you can't take that rejection it's not the business to go into if you're looking for fairness or even loyalty in some cases it's not the business to do, you know, so, Choose where you want to play and who you want to play with carefully. Do you want to work with? But get used to rejection because that's going to be a standard. It is for anybody in any of the performing arts. You'll have more no's than yeses, but it's the yeses that really count.
0: Yeah, I think um, that's I mean, a great answer. So, what's so? Did you start playing at the, the hacienda regularly? What was the next? What was the next, if you will? what was the next stage in your career? It can be alongside this residency at Dry or it can be afterwards, but what what do you sort of see looking back as the next sort of, you know, segment of your career?
1: Because I was at Dry from about 92. Over the next couple of years, I got bits and bobs of other gigs in Manchester or other places. So I started popping up here and there, which was handy because you were playing at Dry. Yeah. Um. And you know, and you, you had a little spot at the Hacienda as a warm-up or something like that on a Wednesday night or whatever. Uh, but then... um. A, a new radio station came to Manchester called KISS 102, taking the frequency of another station, Sunset, the first black music station, at legal black music station, which had started and, and had gone bust. So um, these guys applied for the license doing kind of like a, a different version of KISS in London. Um, and they licensed the name from KISS in London because they had the rights for it and wanted to start a dance station in Manchester because it's 94 and it's huge. And there was no radio station doing that so they got the license and somebody a, a very kind man called Pete Mitchell used to be on Virgin uh he passed away last year recommended me for a job there um so I got a job as head of music doing the music you know programming the music which I'd done before which was a was like fantastic but you had to be on air as well doing that job you couldn't just do it as a standalone so I was on air Monday to Friday from 10 in the morning till 2 in the afternoon and then Saturday night 6 till 9. Um,
0: Pretty good so gig, was, if you ask me. It was busy, yeah. <laughs> so, I, yeah.
1: so I, you know, and but and I lived there. I basically lived in that station because it was ninety four in Manchester. You'd gone through the progressive house bit, had come in in that like 91, 92 and it didn't really suit Manchester that much because Manchester likes euphoric, uplifting music. By and large. it likes to put the they like to put their hands in the air man even if it's to take out they'll put their own there it's a but northern got, thing
0: yeah. i think you know like yeah, it's it's it's, it it's, it's, it's you know as well as like liverpool and belfast and glasgow people like to be happy whereas i think sometimes yeah. you know I'm not categorizing i'm not blanket categorizing but sometimes people in other cities like to be cool do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I, think, I think the further north you get, and I have experienced this with my gigs, further northern you get, the more people want to be raj, the more people want to be hands in the air, bouncing yeah. off the walls, hanging off a girder, going ballistic. That's the northern work hard, party yeah. hard mantra.
1: yeah. So, so kind of the prog thing didn't get really take off that much in Manchester and it started coming, the, the sort of like, Graham had really pushed the US vocal house thing by this point yeah. and that had really caught on in Manchester. Plus then the labels were signing more of that. So was, it was building up again. Um, so it was a great time to be doing that. And because I was on the radio, I just got offered loads of gigs. So, you know, I was, I was working, you know, certainly by 95, 96, I would be working... Friday and Saturday night. And I was still at dry. I never stopped doing dry. Uh, And then I'd be working Friday and Saturday. You know, Saturday, very often two gigs. And then you'd start going outside of Manchester because, you know, this guy's on Kiss and you'd go and play somewhere and they'd recommend you. So I was, uh, you know, I was fried, to be honest, because I was working seven days a week, effectively, because there'd be Sunday gigs in Manchester. Sunday was a big going out night. And, you know, and I would, I, I just wanted to play. So I, I played a lot of places. And I think that, so that's probably the next big progression, which you, you, you kind of look at it and go flipping out, you know, sort of night, end of 93 or into 94. I'm doing like a couple of gigs a week. And then two years later, you're off, you know. Do you want to go and do the Kiss and Ibiza trip? Yeah, I'll go and do the Kiss and Ibiza trip. Off you go. You land in Ibiza. Your first gig's at Mambo. Then you go and do Sparody, Then you do Amnesia. Then you do Spade. And, you know, madness, really. But again, this is why I say what I say. You've got to get used to people who aren't as talented as you doing better. Was I more talented than people who were doing smaller gigs or no gigs? Undoubtedly I wasn't. There was loads of DJs in Manchester better than me, tons of them, loads of them, who were way better than me, technically across the board. But I, I was lucky. I was on you know I had the radio thing going. So you know I, I've benefited from that rule as well. You know, it swings and roundabouts. Sometimes it'll work your favour, sometimes it won't. You know, I was definitely playing gigs above where I should have been playing at that point on a basic level, but I wasn't going to say no.
0: I think you make, I mean, I, I agree with your point, and i think that the caveat that i would add on is that, that everyone in the industry to a certain extent has their angle or an angle do you know what yeah. i mean and sometimes that's accidental sometimes it's an angle that someone's very much working now whether that's you are the little brother or the little or the son of someone that's very important whether that's that you are on a radio station by again by hook or by crook or by luck or by talent whether that's you've written a one hit wonder yourself or had a one hit wonder written for you whether you were the original resident at uh, a you know, a club that became iconic, like all of these things, I don't think lessen, you know, the, your influence on your ability, ability to be a DJ, but you are completely correct. That doesn't always make you better than that kid who was unfortunately, you know, not the son of a big record label boss or club owner and didn't happen to win a DJ competition and get onto a radio station or didn't happen to be the first resident, at uh, you know, a groundbreaking venue. So yeah, I definitely agree with you and I would definitely sort of, you know, harbour your words that there's been plenty of DJs that I've seen that have been much better than me, you know, but I've gone on after them somewhere or they're not touring the same way. So yeah, I don't know how I weigh that up, really. I guess from my perspective, I've just always thought that if you haven't got an angle, work one out. Do you know what I mean? You know, if you're not lucky enough to have one of those things bestowed on you, work out what you do have, work out what's in your locker, work out what you're good at, work out what you can create to be your angle, whether it's starting a podcast, whether it's starting a record label, whether it's starting a night, whether it's, you know, befriending this person. Um, I guess it's sort of advice, but yeah, if you haven't got an angle, get one.
1: <laughs> and I think out. actually, I think that's, that's, in some ways, being it, starting off as a DJ now is really difficult because it's a wash. With People want to sort of DJ and there's so much going on, but at the same time there are there are more angles available yeah. You know, the only promotion in the 90s that you had was you go and do gigs And if you you know, if you, if you had a radio show you were really lucky that was great promotion But for most DJs, you know that you know, they might have might be able to get into mix mag maybe people start writing about them, you know, uh, that promotion was people going to see the gigs and building up a reputation and getting booked here and there and getting steadily bigger. But, you know, there was, again, no streaming, you know, no no YouTube, you know, setting up a record label to put your own music out. Very few people were able to do that then. There's a lot more things you have to do now, but there's a lot more things you can do. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I always feel I've been really lucky, but I always think if you aren't any good, if at least you aren't even a bit good, if you're really not very good, then within a year or so, enough people will have booked you to say, "Don't bother." Yeah. Don't bother booking him because he's shocking. You know, yeah, you, you nobody will, yeah, cares.
0: You will. You will get found out. Yeah, um, exactly. So, Kiss was. How long was did that go on for? This. So we're sort of getting into the late '90s now. Yeah. You You're really working hard at Kiss, and you're and you're also doing a lot of gigs. Did that come? Did that? what changed what was what again what what are we looking at and i know i'm skipping a lot of stuff here but we could talk for for hours so so what what was the next what was the next thing that that had a big change like you know did you like what was the next major change or what was the next sort of segment would you say as you were coming to the millennium and where did you dj millennium eve
1: uh home on leicester square
0: wow with the escalators yeah yeah yeah
1: so 97 as 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 we went sort of like getting past 97 i've done kissing the beef again and came back from kissing the beef but I, there'd been a lot of rumors about the radio station possibly being sold and and i found out subsequently because it did really well in manchester like anytime you went into a garage or a shop or got in a taxi or any of that stuff you heard it everybody had it on every student had it on. everybody in the 25 so it was a big thing and it was a decent license to have so People had been trying to buy the station on and off because it was privately owned almost since it opened. Um, and there was a feeling that this was maybe coming. Uh, we'd also got to 97. The Hacienda had closed. Manchester was getting quite dark. That podcast, you know, that mentioned some of it. There was a lot of violence in clubs. You know, there were a lot of guns floating around. People were being sort of shot. It, it, it was starting to feel a bit creaky. And um, and I thought... Um, I'm going to look for another job, I think, and I don't know what it's going to be. And I got headhunted. Uh, I got a call one day from a guy saying, my name's Peter Good, I work at MTV in London. Um, We'd like you to come and talk to us about being head of music. I'm like, oh, right, okay. Go down do the interview, went down and did the interview and, you know, met, met him and, and said, do you fancy doing this? And, um, you know, we want to get somebody in to do, you know, it's been a rock thing, times have changed we want to get, you know, Britpop in, we want to get dance music in, You, have you, been told you're the bloke to speak to. I'm like, oh, okay. So, spoke to me then wife and said, we're going to have to, do you want to move to London? She was like, yeah. So, I handed me notice in, and the week after it was sold. Uh, to, and then became Galaxy um so yeah, i moved I to London. yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was like because the first thing they did was take off just about everybody they let me carry on the saturday night show so i would moved to london and i used to record it in the place called wise butter in london and send it back up um for a year or so um so i was i was doing that and, and this is when the rule of you know the rule of dance music came in which is i was no longer on the radio every day in manchester and funnily enough, there weren't as many gigs. Who knew? All of a sudden, not as many people are returning me calls. Um, some loyal people did. And I had a, res- a residency that I still came back and did. But the phone went a lot quieter. And, I, you know, that was, a, I, that was the first time I learned that when you're hot, you're hot. And when you're not, forget about it. Forget about it. I was, going, you to ask got- you,
0: I was going to ask you about the London thing. So, obviously, moving to London, I take it, what, like 98? 97. seven, ninety eight. And um, what were the sort of instant differences that really struck you? Like, I mean, I, I mean, you know, culturally, musically, did you do any gigs down in London? Um,
1: well, because it, it, what eventually happened was because you know I I'd get the odd one here or there through contacts that I still had, which was quite good. And I'd, I used to come up and play in Liverpool and Manchester, usually at least once a month, but because couldn't really sort of get in because it it was really closed in london um i started my own friday night at a place called the elbow rooms in swiss cottage which was like a it's like a pool hall that was owned by arthur baker the producer arthur baker and he had three of them in london so um i spoke to a couple of mates of mine jamie and i you know you talk about angles i thought right what's the angle for a thing in london right i know what i'm gonna do so I, i rang up Jamie Scarlett and Mark Hobby with the Slamming Boys who were on Galaxy. And uh, for a while, I went, I want to do this night on a Friday night. I'm going to call it Northern Scum. What do you think? And he went, yeah, that'd be good. I said, There's not much money, but they'll pay us. And you can stay at ours. And we'll get free beer. And we'll, we'll walk away with maybe 100 quid each or whatever. But it'll just be fun. And we're playing in London. So they went, right, OK. So that's what we did. So we started this this Friday night, which we did for about a year and a half in the elbow rooms and I used to get all my mates, that my new mates in London to come down and anybody who was Northern or related to Northern, you know, we used to get a lot of the pluggers coming down who used to go. So it was just good fun really. But on the whole, it was quite a tough scene for being from Manchester, breaking into the London scene was really difficult. And
0: musically, how is it different?
1: In 97, um, Well, it's the bulk of it was then, especially once you got into 98, 99, was trance was everywhere. And that was the case for most clubs, really. You know, there'd be the odd one. There were some some good, really specialist nights in London. The one good thing about the club scene there was there were lots of little clubs. So if you were in a drum and bass, if you wanted to go and see Buckham play, you knew where to find him. You know, if you wanted to go and hear US garage, you knew where trouble was Jazzy playing. Yeah, you know, <laughs> J- you, you know, what I mean, outside of the Ministry of Sound, yeah. there was lots of places to kind of go to, and that was the great thing about it. But yeah. breaking in as a DJ was really, you know, it was really difficult. I only got a few, and they don't drinks.
0: always like us Northerners, mate. Do you know what I mean? That's, I that's don't know the thing. That is. <laughs> yeah, I know. And there was, if I'm honest,
1: and you know, it was a bit like, oh, he's this bloody mank, you know, Northern Monkey coming down, thinking he can get some gigs, you know. It, there was a there was a bit of that, to be honest. So
0: so so then, on that on the back of that statement, how did you end up doing Millennium Eve in Home in Leicester Square?
1: No, another Northern Monkey. So Dave Haslam uh, yeah. had been had been given um, the thing to book. So there was anybody who went to him. It was massive, huge. Had escalators, yeah. three floors three different rooms and um he'd been asked to book one of the rooms to play so because i was living in london as well so because i've known dave a long time so he ran me up and said do you want to play here on new year's eve And i'm like yeah that sounds brilliant uh and he said i'll do midnight i don't mind doing midnight and i'm going okay so i went and watched the firework display off the balcony outside in you know this incredible firework display of the millennium um and then um Got the the uh, late the early tube bone with my record. Boxed. I was I was supposed
0: um. to be just round the corner actually. So at that time, I'd gone to acting school in London, and I was DJing at the Sports Cafe, which was like just, oh. down, just around just round the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was I was doing I think I was doing like Friday night or something. Another one of those things when I was like I was a band like I, and you know I got down there wandered in one night in freshers week or something told the the manager that the dj was rubbish and that i was better than him just drunk and full of idiocy and um he went all right give me your phone number then thought nothing of it you know got called up a few weeks later he said we're going to give you a trial and got and and then i was like all right cool and he went he said it's 250 quid and we'll give you your dinner and we'll pay your taxi home is that all right and i was like (laughs) <laughs> I like, yeah, yeah, manage, yeah i was like yeah. I, yeah I suppose do you know what i mean i was like i'd come from up north where i think i was maybe getting 100 quid a night anyway and they'd laugh at you if you said you wanted a taxi home or anything but um i was booked to do in Millennium, name even and, Eve, and it ended up that i got i grew up in carlisle and it ended up that i got offered like a load of money to do a place in carlisle and all my pals were there so i went back up there but yeah funny i should have been just around the corner um so I think you had a better night i can tell you you definitely <laughs> had a better night so so we've now entered into you know the wonderful, glorious new millennium of the of, of the two thousands. What's what holds? What's what happens to you in that in that that first decade in those in those in those noughties? Uh,
1: I ended up working. Uh, I had another job in between MTV and uh, and then I went to work for a, a station called Atlantic Two Five Two as a program director. Amazing. And I was based in Ireland for a year and a half uh and and we put a dance music show on there which you know dance music on long wave radio madness <laughs> but we toured that so i i started djing again on that tour at weekends. so we went all over the uk and ireland so i went to some places i'd never i couldn't barely spell uh and that was fantastic just to go and do it. and we did it live on air so it was a live broadcast and we'd have the residents on and whichever guests they had so we did that for a year and a bit and then I went to work at Ministry of Sound to set up their radio division because they they, right. they they'd finally got the idea actually we should be doing radio um so did that for a year and a half and sort of continued doing a bit of northern Scum and continued doing a bit of that land of the bpm thing for a while and then started doing some bits and bobs for ministry um and then came back up to Manchester in '93 because my then wife's father was really ill. In 2003, and,
0: sorry, did you yeah,
1: okay. and we just had to, we had to come back up then because he just wasn't wasn't well at all. Um, I'd actually started working for Head Candy, producing their radio show, so I, I was in between jobs. I'm thinking, oh God, you know, I'm going to give up on radio. I've had enough. I've had enough of radio. You know, the jobs are too unstable. Um, I had a little girl by now. Uh, and then got a call from somebody sort of saying, I've "Got this radio show um that's on Jazz FM, and it, it's gone on a Galaxy, but they're going to take it off because it sounds shit. The music's great, but it sounds dreadful. Can you do you fancy a few days a week as a producer?" And you know, I'm not working at this point. I'm thinking, "That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah." And they and they sort of said, "We'll pay you this a day," you know, and I'm like. Brilliant. Oh, that's Excellent. great. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah, and you can maybe produce another show as well while you're there. We'll give you another day, rate. Right? So I ended up working at Jazz FM in Edge where for four days a week, and then we had to start working on the Head Candy show, just producing it, and we had to move back up at that point. But GMG, the guys there, John John, and John, in fact, two Johns, both very kindly said, look, we'll, you know, this is working really well. Galaxy are dead happy. We're happy. We'll pay your train fare if you'll come down three days a week. If you can find somewhere to stay, and do it in three days, we'll we'll pay your train fare, and we'll let you do that, we'll keep your job, so I'm like, right, so did that, and then about a year in, so about 2004, after a year of working for Head Canyon, still doing my little gigs, they finally asked me to DJ for them, you know, and I've been dropping pretty big hints, for (laughs) about six months, to be fair, (laughs) pretty big hints, are you working
0: with, is Mark Doyle presenting it, Mark's presenting it,
1: uh, and Andy Norman's there, And, you know, the way they did the show before I did it was they got in a studio with two decks and a microphone over the decks and mixed it and did the links live, which is great in theory, but you're never going to get a really tightly produced show. You know, maybe as Tim, you know, I'll say that again, as the secret DJ has written about, most radio shows that you hear are, are all produced to death. Even the live ones, they are cut up, edited, everything is tight. And so you become used to that yeah. as a sound so that's what i did with their show I'd, I'd get them to do the mixes i'd edit them i'd get the write a script get them to record it cut the links down fit it in and make it tight so every you know suddenly the show sounded a lot better just because there was like some a radio production.
0: show
1: yeah it sounded like a radio <laughs> show it, i wasn't doing anything groundbreaking it was just doing... i had
0: this i had this same conversation on on the last podcast with nadia lucy and i was talking about um, and you all know this obviously You're talking about the back of the dark days of making a DJ mix do you know what I mean? and you'd set up your mm-hmm. decks you'd plug in your mini disc recorder or whatever it was and you'd and you'd head off on your journey and if you fucked it up you'd have to start again and everything else and and then I used to you know then for a few years I would start to record live sets from clubs and if I was super lucky I'd have FX mics and things like that um, and you'd be doing dropouts for sing-alongs or you'd be doing like you know silly stuff and then when you start listening to them out of context they fucking sound awful do you know what I mean even though that's what's happening in the nightclub you know you're like fuck that sounds fucking hot because you've become like you said it's a really good point your ears become trained to this radio sound of Danny Ramplin and Pete Tong so then I now naturally if I'm asked to make a mix for to promote a, a release or something a radio show I make it in Ableton because it sounds yep. Yeah. that's how it should if drive, someone's driving along in the car that's what almost what their ear wants to hear
1: yeah yeah I, so my i mean the show i do now i play 13 songs in the first hour Like that's and that's kind of the that's that's the 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 number that i've worked out kind of works in terms of where you want to put links and if there's a commercial break in the middle and you know you get a sweep of music there for about five or six songs either side but you know so that's five song you know that's 13 songs all of which are six usually six or more minutes long that i've got to get into 50 into 60 minutes so i you know i make it in ableton i'm editing the intros and the outros to get the songs in and figure out how i can get a really tight link in to like 20 seconds to go up to the start you know it's it's constructed and they've been that way for years but it's just the listener isn't aware of it but that's how they hear it yeah so so that's what we are doing in the Headcanon. and then, I, then I, they started me off on a gig. So the first gig I did for them was a Saturday afternoon at a Cecil G closed shop in Birmingham. Nice. Uh, obviously that nobody wanted to do. Uh, the second gig I did for them was uh, Stereo in Newcastle. So now, if you, you you talk about kind of northern crowds, so for those that that weren't around there, you know it. Obviously Stereo was a bar uh, in the city centre. Um, but it was just,
0: well, it was just about 150 meters away from foundation. It was, yeah, yeah,
1: was, yeah just across. I mean, <laughs> and just owned around, by the same guys, the, that was the point the of it. Guys. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, you know, it was like Dry was to the hacienda, Stereo was to foundation in Newcastle. Yeah. Um, and they said, "Oh, we've got this gig. Uh, it's a Sunday night. You start at eight, you finish at midnight." I'm going, "What? Yeah, yeah he's got music." and at midnight i'm going really and it's like four hours we might start at seven but usually it's about eight o'clock and there's two of you on i can and, see it yeah. i can see yeah. it now <laughs> and, I, and i went off and, and you went from the outside it didn't look like anything at all and you went in and everything's white wasn't it it was all white and there was curved surfaces it was really designed nicely inside yeah but at eight by eight o'clock Every single person that could dance in that place was dancing already, and it was mobbed, and it was hot, and it was the the atmosphere was crazy. I mean, you know, it would have been crazy in a Saturday night in any club. The fact it's in a bar on a Sunday night for four hours, was ju- it was just incredible. And, and out of all, all the UK gigs that the had Candy DJs used to go to, there'd be a few you'd really want to do. You'd really want to do Gatecrasher. You'd really want to do Pasha. But any time you saw that you got stereo, that's a good weekend. You know, what I mean, that's like brilliant. You know, I'll go and do I'll go and do back to back for four hours in stereo, and you can have gatecrash at that weekend. I'm fine with that. I it really was
0: amazing. I think it's. I mean, I, I could talk to you for about two hours just about about stereo in Newcastle. But I think it's. <clears throat> it was something that I was always really really envious of. Like um, good mates with Dino, you know, like Dean Rig, who did yeah. <clears throat> who did it for a while. And obviously I know some of the other guys on did Daniels through through Mark and things. Yeah. And it was like it was it was something I never did. Um, and I would really wish to have done it because lot like, talking to you about it, knowing what Dino did and, and Daniels. Like I love that. Like I have I don't particularly enjoy the being the headliner type pressure and type thing. <clears throat> I quite like the idea of being a touring DJ, but for the brand, so you just turn up somewhere and it's busy because of the brand it's busy because of the style of music um and I think it was something that would have just really suited my way of being a DJ and the music that that I loved so it's something that I was always really envious of that kind of like touring and you know some of the places you met I mean I played Pasha for like a CR2 night but I think I'd have probably enjoyed it much more going down with Dino and doing a head candy night because it's just The atmosphere, the kind of the brand is doing all the work and, you know, the the dance, the girls and everything else. And, yeah, I think, I mean, that must have been an amazing period.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was it was fantastic because you and you put your finger on the head there. People are coming there for the brand. They know uh, certainly up to the, the first year of the ministry buyout. It was really clear musical offer. Uh, it got bigger and bigger organically. It hadn't done it through spending loads of money on marketing because the marketing spend was really low on those albums. They, they really didn't have much money at all. And, and it was word of mouth grew the albums, then word of mouth grew the gigs. And the whole point of it was, if you're a punter, you can turn up to a head candy night and it's going to be head candy. You don't have to worry about it. And from a DJ's point of view, you always went out in twos. So you've got somebody with you, which is brilliant. You're not on your own. You know, the gang's here, you'd have a production person with you, so you'd, you'd, you're there with some people who became your friends. And every DJ you played with was different from the other one. So no two gigs were the same, because Jim had played different from Andy, Andy had played different from Norm, Mark had played different from uh, Andy Warburg. They, everybody played different. So from a DJing point of view, it was a constant surprise. And some some DJs like to do half hours and do it in half hours on your own. Most of us like to do it, maybe one or two tunes each, and do it yeah. proper back to back. Yeah, and that—that that is still my favourite type of DJing because that other DJ, you do not know what he's going to play. Yeah, and you're going to have to come
0: out of it. And it's that constant you're... one-upmanship and like, oh yeah, yeah I love it. And man. also, you know, when, <laughs> when two of
1: you are in tune really well. And you both go. You both know when it's time to drop down a bit. You both know when you need to climb, and and you know that other person chooses something you maybe wouldn't have, and that makes you think about what right. Well, what am I going to do next now? So f- from a punter point of view, it's brilliant because the music's, you know, it's head candy, but it was never predictable because you never knew what was going to happen next, and everybody had a different style. So, and we got to play at amazing clubs. You know, it was it was a it's probably out the DJing side of the career. It's probably one of the highlights. Certainly that 2003 to two, well, 2004 to 2007, um, was, uh, amazing just because the music was really good that we were able to choose from to play within that brand. And we could play a really wide span of stuff under the name of head candy. It wasn't all put them high, yeah. you know, uh, and higher place. Yeah. There was a lot of really good quality stuff. You know, you, it, it, it 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 denigrated towards the end.
0: Yeah, I think uh, there's I think there's two points that like I would like to personally make about head candy. Number one, I think people forget just how fucking huge it was when it was at its peak. And number two, just how good the fucking music was when it was at its peak. And I think now it can be used as a a, 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 a disrespectful byword. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh that's just very head candy. But like you say, that that I think doesn't is very unfair on it as a musical brand because I mean I remember going to Stereo. I remember going to different nights, and musically, yeah, it was phenomenal. You know, really. I mean, it's to be honest, I'd say at it's peak. And people won't remember, might not remember it like this. But for me, Head Candy at its peak is really all, in a way, what Glitterbox is now.
1: Like, well yeah and to be honest you know what's what's happened with Glitterbox. i love that label is it's exactly the label that head candy should have been to went two years ago yeah. and the a and r there missed it completely they yeah. missed the whole coming you know Surge coming a coming back at disco and yeah. new disco that and as you know that got bigger and bigger over the last sort of five or six years yeah. and there was nobody at ministry who had announced to go that's what we need to get on because we owned that eight years, nine years ago. And if they had, and they'd have applied the kind of nouse that Dunmore and his crew have done and yeah. given the budgets to the remixes and producers yeah. and, and done done the artist stuff alongside the, the remixes and the licensing, they'd have whopping sales and they'd have the credibility that Glitterbox had. Uh, but the... Whoever you know, and I mean no personal slight to I don't know who it is, they really, really missed the trick because glitter box is exactly what head candy should be now and would and you know could have been. Yeah,
0: it's now. it's very much, if I didn't quite articulate it before, it's very much a modern day offering of what yeah. head candy was when it was at its and when I say peak, I don't potentially mean its busiest. I mean at its peak of its kind of coolness and credibility and you know a musical offering. Um, but you know, so like you say, well done to. Done Moretto. <laughs> yeah, for you know I mean? they,
1: they, they did it. You know, yeah. and, and um, you know, I listen. I often listen to that stuff and think, yeah, you know, if 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 Ed was around now and it was the same people involved and I was, you know, that's exactly what we want to be playing and putting out exactly because they, they they get it
0: they get it right ninety nine times out of
1: hundred. I'd say.
0: And then. So, you're having this really fantastic experience with, with head candy. You're producing a radio show and stuff. You're back in Manchester. Um, again, what is the next sort of period? Does head candy come to an end? Does it just peter out, or are you, doing a, are you still doing head candy while you're starting to do other stuff? Well,
1: one of the rules when you played for head candy was you didn't play for anybody else. Right. So, uh, and, and for instance, in Manchester, they never found until very late on a permanent home, a club that worked. Them or a place that worked, so from 2004 till about 2008, I hardly ever played in my hometown, right? Because I couldn't find Why, Why do you think they struggled to find a
0: home in Manchester? Uh, I, I think, um,
1: I think in the early days when Mark was still involved, it was because he couldn't find a club that had the mixture of the right interior and the right crowd. He was very, Mark was really choosy about who got a gig, it wasn't about could you afford it, it was about what's your club like. What's your crowd like? What's the promoter like? It had to all fit together. He was always really clear on that. And then Ministry came in and after 2007, it was, have you got four grand? Have you got yeah, five grand?
0: Yeah, can, yeah, can you say right,
1: that? Yeah. But, it, you know, in, in all of them, it had to be right across the board. And he ne- we, They never really found one in Manchester which suited it uh, until kind of they came across a club called Venus. Yeah. which was about about right, I think. It was yeah, I've right. Played,
0: I've played Venus a yeah. few times. You did.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, the crowd and the type of music they loved was right and it was safe. Uh, but um, at, at that point, Venus was, was not kind of where it was towards the end of the, that first decade. So I didn't play in Manchester much then. Uh, hardly ever. Rarely. That's crazy. Um, I know. So, you know, I was persona. nobody, you know, they knew I was doing egg candy, but I never played anywhere. Um And then Mark left first year at ministry was okay. To be honest, they just left it as is just left it as is. So, and I took over the radio show. So I started doing the radio show on galaxy, which they moved to Saturday nights then. Um, And so then I, you know, I was getting farmed out because the show was syndicated. I I started doing a lot of international stuff for him. So there was a lot of
0: traveling, which
1: was great on one level. Um, Spent a lot of time in airports
0: but I'm not, uh, gonna, and I'm not gonna, yeah. I'm not going to ask you to say yeah. what you get paid or didn't get paid as a head candy DJ. Oh, I'll Tell, no, I, tell but, you, no, no, no. But, but, I mean, my point, no, but only my point was going to be was that, was that I know from people who I knew worked for head candy that you are doing the international sort of travel and time away from home and pressures of of that, but you're not always receiving the same financial um, reimbursements as the the big like headline DJs who were doing that same stuff and for like, yeah. yeah and, and so yeah. for everyone and I would still love it especially now in a pandemic I'd love to get on a plane and go and do a gig of course I would but it is draining it does mess with your sleep patterns it does take you away from friends and family it does take you away from home you know sitting in airports yeah it is glamorous no one's going to no one's going to deny for a second that walking into a club in another country isn't fucking amazing but everything else the 9 10 12 14 hours either side of it can be really fucking draining and can can really take out of you. My my standard joke
1: is that I've been to lots of countries for less than 12 hours. So (laughs) I've been to Dubai. I was there for 14 hours because I flew in to Abu Dhabi, got driven to Dubai, went to a hotel, change, go and do the club, come back, change, wash, didn't even use the bed, back to the hotel. And, you know, a 12-hour flight on either side of it. So I I did a lot of that. Um, When Mark was there, you got paid in English clubs depending on the size of the gig. So, if it was a, so Gatecrasher Crasher and Pasha were good, really good payers um, because it, there was more people in them. If yeah. it was a smaller gig like Stereo, you'd so, get paid less, yeah. which seemed, seemed perfectly fair to us. All your travel was paid. Um, ministry came in, cut all the wages by two thirds for the DJs across the board, flat fee for a gig, no matter where it was or how long you were away. So, for instance, I went to Columbia um, when Mark was still there. That was a four-day trip, and we got paid a bit extra because right. we were going to be away for four days. I then later on did a three-week Australian tour for Candy and the Ministry and got paid Got like three-day rates
0: or something. Wow, is
1: this? Three, I was away for three weeks in total from my family, and I got paid this, the... I think I did six gigs in three weeks, which was all right, but... You know, I was away. It was that was a long haul, and I was flying from city to city for like, you know, right across Australia. Great opportunity, and I loved it. But you know, the money, the the money changed. If I'm honest, none of we could deal. With, most of us could deal with the change in money. That wasn't it. It was the fact that the gigs were getting different. It it, it certainly by 2009. If you could afford a head candy gig, you would get it. And they burnt a lot of bridges with some of the older promoters because they yeah. put the prices up. Yeah,
0: and they'd and moved they'd, to the, and they'd moved to the other club in town that was prepared to pay the two yeah. thousand pound extra. And, 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 yeah, and, yeah. You
1: know, yeah. So your damage, your relationship starts to go. So I, I, I remember that my last gig for them was a New Year's Eve, two thousand nine and two thousand ten, in Manchester, at a horrible club that I advised them not to go to, that was full of trouble, really rough, and they took it anyway and did it. And I went there and the sound was awful we couldn't they, they, they didn't have enough bar stuff on they'd oversold uh, there were fights we couldn't even get somebody to go to the bar to get us a water or anything they had musicians on who were mic sort of over louder than the music who couldn't play in time it was it was a nightmare my wife got threatened it was a nightmare uh, and i came home and literally got the computer out and typed in the resignation there and then that was it i'm done
0: Well, that's, I mean, that bookends that for me quite comfortably. And, you know, like, I think, I think, I think you, you described the highs and the lows of that, you know, really well. And ultimately, I'm sure some of, some of your best gig memories come from that. Um, you know, so so that's, that's great. So okay, so we're now kind of verging on 2010, uh, about 10 years ago. Um, Obviously you've already mentioned the club night in, in Manchester, Funk uh, is it Funky academia yeah. which I've i yeah. I've listened to your mixes and seen that over the years as well. So talk us through those sort of I think talk us through those last ten years of what you've been doing as a DJ. Um yeah. and, and, and also a little bit, touch on a guess, what's changed in Manchester, you know, over those those 25, you know, last twenty five, yeah. thirty odd years.
1: Well well again, so you know, I came out of sort of doing head candy and then um so I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have a month off, but I need to start getting some gigs and started calling people. And once again, fully enough, people weren't answering the phone because calls. Head
0: Candy doesn't build you up as a DJ. Yeah. Like you're, yeah. you're part of the brand, and yeah. although you're traveling the world, yeah. and although your name is on the <clears throat> is on the flyers and it is on the posters. That's not building you up. It's almost like being an X radio One DJ, for example. Yeah. You know what I mean? They, yeah. they, they, it builds you up and you live a great life. But when you spat out or you decide to leave the other end, yeah. it's maybe it's not as easy as you thought it might be.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, the, the, the issue was there. So, so you know, and I, and I will say there were a couple of promoters who gave me gigs straight away, which was really good. Uh, but it was pretty tough for a while and then a friend of mine got me I started doing some gigs in the village in Manchester late night gigs which I really loved because I'd done a lot of um, work in the gay clubs in the 90s so I quite enjoyed that but then yeah Funkademia was by that point had been running 11 years and they knew I loved funk and soul and disco and so they gave me a couple of gigs here and there and then said do you want to be a resident so I've been there ever since uh, and done that. And then I have a residency with a place called Boxed Music, which is like a really nice group of people who do it all together, not for the money. And um, they do all kinds, it's mostly sort of techno and house. And I play my my stuff up there. Uh, I've done odd guest stops, but the, the international thing took the wind out of my sails for travelling. I really could not face travelling anymore. And so I decided I would never take a gig if I couldn't drive to it, unless it was something really good. And I had a couple in the Middle East here and there. But by and large, I I get in my car, I drive to my gig, and I come home afterwards. And I love the fact that I can be home now. Because I spent, it sounds like, as you say, people will go, what are they talking about? It must be brilliant. When you do that for about three or four years, you become very separated from normal life. Your sleep pattern's gone. You you don't know where you're going to be. Sometimes more than a couple of weeks ahead, you know, itineraries change. You're constantly thinking, what, What's next? What do I have to do next? And I've got to do the radio show and I've got to do this. You know, my relationship split up. Um, I had a, I, I by there was a point in the mid-naughties uh, where I had a, a fairly decent cocaine problem, um, which I had to get clean from. I got to clean myself up. Because you're just on that roller coaster and you, you you know you're not sleeping and you're knackered, so you know by the end of the, I was I, I was fucked. That's the only way I can put it. By 2010, I was done. So in some ways, that little break was quite good for me, and I've never gone back to even trying to get back to that level of playing all the time, all the time. I like doing the me couple of residencies and the odd thing here. That's fine for me. And Manchester's changed because the clubs aren't
0: there as much
1: and i think can i just interrupt i'm gonna have to just get the charger for this map.
0: so i mean yeah i think basically to take it from where you were obviously you've um you've become a little bit more localized dj and wise and and you know found some gigs that you really enjoy um but i just yeah i did want to touch on you know because you've had that such a close relationship with the city over the years just i guess from your own personal opinion what's changed in Manchester over those, those years from you first starting to go to the Hacienda until, you know, pre pandemic. And, and do you think it's, and I was going to make the point about, you know, you mentioned every, every small town used to have a nightclub and a lot of those have closed. And I guess uh, the question I'm asking you is just what, what do you notice that's changed? And do you think it is, positive or negative things and what's your overall sort of view of where we were I mean let's we'll, we'll touch on the pandemic before we finish but let's just keep this answer up until you know the end of last year or something how have you seen that change in Manchester and do you think the changes are positive or negative?
1: By and large I think a lot of a lot of really good DJs that I know in Manchester like that I would rate are really good uh, are actually working in bars and that's one difference so that there are less clubs now but there are loads of bars where you have DJs playing music. And that it, that that's where an awful lot of the local DJ talent end up working because there aren't many venues, club venues, dedicated club venues that can hold club nights anymore. We've got amazing things like the Warehouse Project, you know, mini festivals twice a week for three, four months. But in terms of the smaller clubs, and Manchester used to have lots, especially out the 90s, lots of small venues do really cool nights. Uh, and a couple of good medium-sized ones, you know, big ones as well, Uh, and they've almost vanished, really. There's there's hardly any venues like that, so a a lot of it has moved into the bars, um, which is, you know, that's just how it is. It's neither good nor bad. From a punter's point of view, they can go to a bar and hear a fantastic DJ for free, for nothing. That also, in some ways, takes down the value of what, those people do and also the value of experiencing a dj because they're they're in, they're in that bar over there and then you go to the northern court and then that bar and then that bar and then this bar so th- that's had a knock-on effect i think on in terms of that um it's, i can't say if it's positive or negative it's just how, it is how it is um, i wish there were a few more venues i wish there were some more clubs what has happened is like people like the box music crew that i know you've got little collectives getting together Because they can't, they're not going to do the warehouse project. They're not going to be doing that. So they find these little venues and do their own thing. And nobody's earning much money out of it. And the good ones get a bit of profile, so they can spend four or five hundred on a decent guest DJ, you know, somebody who's on the way up, whose productions they like, and they'll book them. Um, So there's there's a bit more of that happened. And I think that's really positive because that reminds me of years ago when people would go, Well, okay, we're, gonna, we're not going to play at the SN. Let's do our own night. Who do we know? Which of our mates are DJ? So that's the positive side of that, I think.
0: Um, I do think that's what might come out of And this has been like, for me, A, super interesting, but B, quite a positive, a very positive chat. So I don't want to get bogged down in negativity towards the end. But to be honest, I do see what you've just said there as potentially something that we might be looking at in the next couple of years you know it might be that because when we come out the other side of this pandemic it might be that you know you have to just start little places here and there at this social club or the back end of that fish and chip shop or the upstairs of a pool hall because some of your favorite venues may not exist anymore i mean i hope that's wrong i hope that you know i hope that something happens and we all get back to things but dance music is very secular it is also and not just dance music all kinds of music and all kinds of entertainment it's secular but it's also quite self-reparatory like it does seem to kind of repair itself if something big happens to it and it gets chopped down then new new sprouts seem to spring up somewhere else so you know maybe we will see a return to more you know smaller little venues little divey places um and kids you know and, and i saw the gentleman of the scene but you know people <laughs> start in little things here and there instead of just being in and i've been very lucky to be part of digital for so long but instead you know instead of the gate crashers and the pashas and you know the big 1500 type clubs Maybe maybe they might take a real hit over the course of I mean they already have done in the last decade, yeah. but potentially, you know, over the next you know, the last six months and the next twelve, it it that you know, that may be what we what we've seen. I'm gonna I've loved this chat, but we're gonna start winding it up.
1: I'm amazed you're still awake. No, I yeah. love it.
0: It's one of my favourite ones. I knew <laughs> I knew it would be good. Um, but I wanna start winding it up with there's two things that we do to sort of end it. The first thing is I'm gonna get you to curate like a dream gig now it's just a kind of in the moment thing like because mm-hmm. and obviously the fact that we are six months into a pandemic will will play its part um, you know we, this is just a kind of an in the moment thing so what i want from you is a venue it can be a venue you've played it can be a venue that's open it can be a venue that's closed it can be a generic thing like a you know a large festival a small underground venue whatever you want but you're going to pick the venue. And then you're going to give us three acts. There's not so much a headliner. They're just, you know, they're three co-headlines. It can be a back-to-back DJ set. It can be a band. It can be a live Daft Punk, Chem- Chem's thing, whatever you want. It's just a right in the moment, right now, if you could curate this gig. You can play if you want, or you can just go. But as it stands right now, David, I want this gig. So where's it going to take place?
1: It'd be on the old Space terrace, like the original Space terrace. Uh, either in May or September when it's not too hot. So it's a nice, you know, 70, but not unbearable. I would definitely do the warm-up because, (laughs) sorry, my gig. Uh, And I would want to listen to probably Dimitri from Paris, I think, um, because he's one of my favourite live DJs. You never know what he's going to do. I love listening to him live. Uh, Are we allowed to have people who aren't with us anymore? I'd have Frankie Knuckles then. Sort of Frankie in Paris, and I'd be honoured to carry the record boxes for those two. been Yeah, and if we could squeeze in a PA, if we could get a live act in. I'd get in the full 22-piece Sounds of Blackness choir doing "Optimistic." Wow,
0: that is to strong. Finish
1: the, night, finish the night with "Optimistic" because
0: that's where we need to be. That is strong, sir. That is an amazing dream Yeah, I went to see um, Frankie at like Ministries. 25th birthday, I think. It wasn't a bank holiday, it was just on a Sunday, and it was like Frankie and Morales and stuff. And it was, uh, yeah, it was amazing. I'm so glad we made the journey for that. And then, if people want to find out kind of more about you, more about the radio show, if they want to find out, you know, like bits here, we'll hear the radio show and find out mixes or anything, where can they find you on socials and stuff?
1: Uh, I, I would go, if you want to find out about the radio show because it's more interesting than my personal page, which is just me ranting. Uh, if you're on Facebook, you search. I love
0: those for, rants. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do like a rant. Triple D Music, T R I P L E D E E Music. Search for that on Facebook, and it's the same on Twitter as well. You'll find me doing similar stuff on Twitter. And these mixed cloud pages for the radio show. Search for Triple D. You'll find it up there, and yeah, I'm out and about.
0: I'm Great. So how we end the show is you are going to um, introduce a record to play the show out. Um, it can be anything you like. I mean, ultimately, someone hopefully has been listening to this for the last hour and a bit. So it can be something that we've touched upon. It can be something that is just a memory of, uh, you know, that's been sparked by our conversation. Or it can be something that you heard yesterday on the radio. But I'd like you to introduce it and explain why you think um, I and everyone else should hear it right now. I'm
1: actually, I will choose, it, w- it would have been, normally it would have been French Kiss by Little Louie, because that is my all-time favourite house track, and it, it's, it, what, it it's a, was responsible for a really important decision in my life, but because of where we are, I'm going to ask to play Optimistic by Sounds of Blackness, the original version, um, because it is a fantastic example of what uh, devotional music, which is what it is, it's gospel, it's faith music, uh, how it can bring a message and an emotion across um, that transcends the, just a, a, you know, a song, a CD, single, whatever you want to call it. it, is an, it I think it is beautiful. The, the words are beautiful, but the feeling in it, I defy anybody to get to the end of this song and not, not have goosebumps. If you haven't got goosebumps at the end of this song, you need to see a doctor.
0: All right well, thank you so much for the chat. It's been one of my favorite podcasts ever, David. We're going to play that song now. Thank you very much. sir Goodbye. Goodbye
1: Felix Lighters in the House. The podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are
0: The blindness.